<laughs> Whichever the one smells like, you know, I, I mean, I could, I could come up with some really interesting things, but I'm going to wait for us to taste it together. <laughs> but it's pretty stinky. It, it should scream at you. The, 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 the one from Italy, it should say, whoa. <laughs> Pietro, welcome, man. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Sorry, I'm a couple minutes late. I can't find the link. Don't worry about it. We have a nice group here. Yeah. 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 All right. I think we're gonna we're gonna get started. Uh, Pietro, do you have the uh, the fongoli open? Yes, I do. What do you think, man? I think it's changed a lot. Yeah, it needs some time. Definitely pretty uh pretty reduced when you first open it, but it's really opening up. Yeah, yeah. It needs to breathe and blow off and and kind of do its thing a little bit. Cool. All right, folks. Well, I know a lot of you have uh, amazing meals in front of you. Um, I texted Alessandro. Hopefully, he'll, uh, he's just getting back home from delivery, so he'll pop on and say hello. Um, but, uh, yeah, we uh, thank you all for, for coming. This is going to be a, a fun night, uh, to, talking about a single varietal, both in the, in the old world and the new world. Um, it's, a, it's an exciting grape, definitely one of uh, Italy's most distinct, most, <laughs> it really kind of sits on its own. It's got characteristics of uh, many grapes, but uh, it, uh, it really stands on its own. Um, so yeah, to those of you uh, who are new, welcome. My name's Paul, I'm a, a sommelier and, uh, and, and renegade retailer of a little store called Botivino that's all online and serving Bay Area and beyond. And uh, I'm, Pietro um, is uh, from Prima Materia Winery, and he and I got together uh, a little while ago um, to kind of explore the native grapes of Italy in the New World. Um, and Pietro has some, uh, some awesome wines coming from uh, um, an area up in Lake County, north of us, north of Napa and Sonoma. And, um, and you're going to hear all about them tonight and see maps and things about where he has his grapes. And so I urge you to check out his wines if you're unfamiliar. You're certainly going to taste them tonight. And uh, we're going to start you off with a bang if this is the first time you've ever had wines. Sagrantina is a punch. Um, all right, cool. What do you think, Pietro? How do you want to do this? Uh, do you want to go first with some background in the motherland? We talk about Italy a little bit? Yeah. All right. All right. I'm only going to talk a little bit because um, I want to get to the vineyard. I'm curious about Sagrantino. Um, but uh, all right, folks. So I'm going to talk at everyone just for a, a few minutes about uh, about where Sagrantino comes in Italy. Um, if I could request that everyone uh, puts themselves on mute, I would appreciate it very much <laughs> um, because I'm super ADD. Really? Um, okay. I think I can actually do it myself. Yeah, there we are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just a moment. I'm just going to go through and mute a few, just if that's all right. Thank you, thank you. All right. Just a moment. Bear with me. All right, folks. So, um, Sagrantino in Italy. Um, so Sagrantino itself, and I'll talk a little bit about kind of the, the, where that name comes from and just a touch about the history of it. But 
in Italy, we are smack dab in central of central Italy. We couldn't get more central in Italy if we tried. Um, Umbria is right smack dab in the middle. As you can see, I've circled it here on the map. Um, kind of come a little bit closer to Umbria. You see it's sandwiched between Toscana to its west. You've got La Marche to its north. And then Abruzzo and down Lazio to its southwest and so on and so forth. And um, uh, Umbria is the only region in Italy that is entirely landlocked. Um, and it doesn't see any of the Mediterranean. That doesn't mean that it doesn't see the effects of the Mediterranean, uh, the Adriatic to its east and the Tyranian to its west. But uh, it really is kind of packed in there. And, and a lot of those you know, border areas, certainly the one around Umbria, or excuse me, the one around uh, Lazio and Rome, which is uh, down on that southwestern corner, is very mountainous. So we're looking at the Apennino mountain range, really kind of isolating this area. Um, and uh, when it comes to the Sagrantino grape, uh, we're, we're going to talk tonight mostly about Monte Falco, this purple area uh, right in the center here. Um, but just to give you a very brief kind of snapshot of Umbria, um, it's, a, it's a special place. It's a place that has some history to it. Um, but uh, it's, it, it, it really, uh, when it comes to you know, quality winemaking, <laughs> we're talking about the 1970s to 1980s is when Umbria really began to take off. Um, but just in terms of uh, kind of consuming the region as a whole, if, if, if you were to walk away with, um, with knowing the major areas in this kind of crazy map, I would turn your attention to Orvieto down here to the southwest. Uh, Orvieto, right out, kind of along the border region of Lazio, and right across this border, you start getting into some really interesting territory. But Orvieto is, uh, was mentioned uh, back in the Roman times with Pelini the Elder in, uh, in his scriptures. Uh, Orvieto wines are very famous in the Roman times, um, but really dropped off. And I think for years uh, were known for their inexpensive white blends, kind of cheap and fun and easy and uncomplicated until the uh, Cortorello brothers, uh, Ricardo and Renzo, uh, came along in the 1990s and created Castello de la Sala and uh, really just, just, just rose, uh, really brought the quality of, of, of expression of those wines up with their Cervalo de la Sala and Mufato and those wines. And they're really beautiful if you ever get to taste them. Um, they're mostly featuring a native grape from Orvieto, which played a minor part in a lot of those cheap wines. And the grape was uh, called Grechetto. And with those guys, they made it all on its own and it's opulent and beautiful. Um, moving north, uh, Torgiano is probably the, when it comes to quality winemaking, is, uh, is, is, was the capital for many years in, in, of Umbria of quality winemaking. And to speak of Torgiano Rosso wines is to speak of a gentleman um, by the name of Lungarotti who in the 1970s was the very first in 1977, actually, excuse me, in 1968, um, was the very first to create the DOC in Umbria of Torciano and the very first DOC in Umbria altogether. Um, and to those of you a bit unfamiliar, DOC, I'm, I'm referring to the uh, classification system, the quality standard system in Italy, beginning with uh, Vino di Tavola and moving to IGT, DOC, and DOCG. So it's a tiered system of quality, um, DOCG being the apex, of course. Um, so Lungarotti created that. Um, but tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about Montefalco, and that's right in the center. And, uh, and Montefalco is, Monte is a special place. And as 
both of as the other two regions that I mentioned are are, are really you know synonymous with a, a with a particular name. Excuse me, I don't mean to obscure my screen. Pardon me, just a moment. Just getting some notes in front of me. <laughs> um, Montefalco is uh, is synonymous uh, with the Caprai family, Arnaldo Caprai, and um, you know when it talks when we talk about the history of Sagrantino. Um, the grape itself, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, the base of the word is sagra or sagro, which is, uh, means a festival event, um, uh, which is rumored to be, that's kind of where that grape came from. Um, and, uh, or it could possibly be in reference to the sacrament. Um, but back in the days of, of you know, really, there's really no, I mean, I, I did a fair amount of research on Sagrantino just for this. And I, you know, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> proclamations but very little like dates and evidence to back it up. Um, certainly Sagrantino being around in the Middle Ages, um, but I, I saw no, so no documents referenced. Um, the only one that I did come across was uh, the National Wine Fair in Tuscany in 1898. Uh, the Sagrantino, its sweet version, won an award in the province of Bevara. Um, and that's how Sagrantino was made back in the days, sweet. And when I say made sweet back in the days, that's right up until the 1960s in Italy. Sagrantino was primarily a sweet wine. Um, people did make it dry, they did ferment it dry, but it wasn't known for uh, its qualities fermented dry. Um, I think that has to do with uh, a popularity of sweet wines in the, you know, the 1970s and 80s and so, but also has to do with fermentation science actually making it to the region <laughs> and uh, where they get the information in order to understand how to fully ferment these sugars dry and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, Arnaldo Caprai, uh, the Caprai family, um, really important. Uh, 1971, uh, when they arrived, there was a little bit less than about 12 hectare of Sagrantino around at all, um, just a little bit less. Um, and Arnaldo Caprai uh, bought up most of it. And him, along with uh, the Andante family and the Pellini family, um, they were the ones to revitalize Sagrantino and basically learn how to ferment it dry. And in 1971, um, they began an experimental production of Sagrantino di Secco, dry Sagrantino. Um, and it was a part of a larger Umbrian governmental body um, that were developing how to, how to ferment this wine fully dry. And Arnaldo was, um, was a key in the, in the development of the DOC in Montefalco in 1979. And when his son took over in 1988, um, Sagrantino leapt forward considerably um, because uh, young Marco Caprai um, reached out to the University of Milan to a very, very important scientist by the name of Attilio Schienza and uh, immediately began work, uh, an in-depth analysis in, um, into the, the, the mother plants of Sagrantino and to clonal research and massal selection and all these, and isolating the different clones of Sagrantino. Um, he began to walk at the, at the direction of Attilio uh, Schienza, he began to walk the vineyards, um, all these old vineyards in and around Montefalco uh, and the town of Bevagna, as well as the town of uh, Gualdo Catano and uh, talking to old winemakers, talking to the old timers, saying, where's the best Sagrantino? And being pointed to these vineyards, to this, and pulling cuttings, and bringing that back 
to the University of Milan and, uh, and beginning um, massal selection, um, which is a, a very important process in, in, in really isolating the characteristics of Sagrantina that you want in your vineyard, um, as opposed to the vineyards in other provinces who need other characteristics um, that can be isolated with their own massal selections. And Marco Capri did this, and he, um, in 1992, Montefalco was raised to DOCG, and uh, that was largely uh, due to the efforts of Marco Capri. Um, it's, it's, you know, there are very few uh, stories in Italy where a single family can take, really take claim um, to the revitalization of a, of a single grape, um, and the Capri family were the ones to do that. And, uh, yeah, I've got some other things to say, but this is not a... Umbria class, so. <laughs> um, welcome, Alessandro. Ciao. <laughs> Ciao, <we> everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> How is everything? There's lots of clapping going on. And oh, good. <laughs> you have some happy people here, Alessandro. Alessandro, piacere di vederti. Ciao. <laughs> Grazie. <laughs> Grazie a voi. Thank you. <laughs> good. Um, good. All right, Pietro, you want to talk a little bit about how Sagrantino got to the United States? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. I'm not totally sure either. Um, <laughs> they don't even know how it got to Italy. Yeah. Like you mentioned, uh, its history as you know, a dry red wine is not very long. Um, the first cuttings that I know of uh, came in probably about 2004. Um, actually, it's not true. Uh, I know that Randall Graham of Bonnie Dune uh, brought some cuttings in to Tracy Hills out by Stockton. Uh, I, I made uh, our first Sagrantino from those grapes in 2010. Um, and I was talking to the vineyard manager about them, and he said he didn't know what the hell this stuff was. Um, but it was very virused, uh, did not grow very well, and unlike normal Sagrantino, it had paper-thin skins and very little tannin. But uh, after several years of growing Sagrantino, it definitely was a type of Sagrantino that is growing out there. Um, at the same time, a guy named Ridgely Evers, who owns Devero up in Dry Creek, I believe he planted suitcase clones of Sagrantino, which you're not supposed to do these days. Just what because you bring, in, uh, you bring in cuttings from the, the you know, Italy in this case, Umbria. Steal. Uh, when, you steal cuttings. <laughs> you borrow them. Uh, it's, a no, it's a very noble pursuit. Uh, but the issue is you can bring in viruses with those cuttings and then they can infect your vineyard and the nearby vineyards. Um, and there's a lot of red blotch and things like that that have spread because of that. Um, but I think the first actual bottlings of Sagrantino in the United States labeled Sagrantino were in 2008 simultaneously from those two vineyards. Uh, the interesting thing is that the, any plant material that uh, you plant in a vineyard is supposed to go through foundation plant services, which is... Uh, they basically culture all these things and make sure that they're virus free. And then they sort of put them out for sale in conjunction with uh, the, the people who propagate the vines. Yeah. And that way you can be assured somewhat that they're, that it's clean genetic material. 
there's only one type of Sagrantino that is certified in the United States. Mm. And it was actually, they thought it was Sangiovese back in the 1990s. Uh, it was brought in with the big uh, Calital push in the early 1990s. I believe Pepe brought it in. And uh, they realized later that it wasn't Sangiovese at all. And it wasn't certainly wasn't growing like Sangiovese. They look kind of similar, but Sagrantino is much more aggressive in the vineyard. Yeah. Um, so it was reclassified as Sagrantino down the road. And that's the type we planted because it's technically the only one that's not legally, but the, the only clean genetic material you can get at this point in the U.S. Um, but there are several different clones of Sagrantino and the different regions have sort of a different stylistic fingerprint. And part of that's related to the type, the biotype that's growing in those specific areas. So Sagrantino's history is not very long uh, in the U.S. at all. I mean, it's a wine that almost vanished off the earth in 1970. So interest is, is going to be limited. Uh, but when a lot of these Italian wines made it over, kind of corresponding with the food revolution of the 1990s, it really opened a lot of people's eyes. And like Paul was saying, a lot of people, uh, their introduction to Sagrantino was either Capri or another producer called Paolo Bea, who's a little bit on the more natural, uh, slightly wild side. Um, but again, very passionate, uh, beautiful wines. Uh, just a little bit of a different register with them. I'm kind of surprised um, that Sagrantino made it over here at all. Um, just because there's only literally 12 to 14 hectare available in Umbria. As yeah. 1971, that was it. <laughs> It must have just impressed enough people yeah. to grab a little bit of a toehold. And now there are probably, hundred. I, I think I saw 120 acres planted in the U.S. And that's spread out. There's some in Sonoma County, uh, actually a few blocks in Sonoma County. Uh, several people in Dry Creek are growing it. Um, there's some in the Sierra Foothills. I have a friend up there who just put in a vineyard of it. Uh, Paso. There's some down outside of San Diego and Temecula. Yep. Uh, it's a grape that's fairly hardy. It can take a good amount of heat. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it likes it scorching hot. I think it's, it's in that middle zone. I think it's more adaptable than Sangiovese to warmer climates, but maybe not quite as much as Ionico. Um, but have more natural acidity than Sangiovese. Because I know that Sagrantino is imbued with at least at least like five or six on the on the scale of acidity. Yeah, and the Sagrantino, the as a grower, the issue with Sagrantino is well, you have three things: you have a wall of tannin, and you're trying to judge when it's matured enough to be able to pick. But even when it's mature enough to pick, it's still a wall of tannin that never quite goes away and it's fine grain noble tannin but it's you know it's a face full of tannin that's it's that's the highest i think the highest of all italian red grapes and isothianins yeah it's the highest yeah yeah and it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the darkest but the all those phenolic compounds like it's very very rich in those yeah. uh small berries big seeds thick skins um, at the same time, it's hanging on to acidity, but the one really critical thing with Sagrantino is that it develops a ton of sugar and a ton of alcohol, consequently. Um, 
the uh, the way it grows in the vineyard, um, you know, you have a you have a cane and you have leaves kind of alternating along it. And sometimes with vigorous vines, you have a cane and then you have something called a lateral, which is like a small cane branching off at 90 degree angles. And then you'll have a few leaves on that. And that usually means that you need to balance your vine a little bit, maybe not give it water. Uh, but Sagrantino naturally produces those. And it then it's the only grape I've ever seen that will have a cane and then a lateral. And then the lateral will have a lateral. And they're closely clustered leaves the whole way. And the leaves are basically, the sugar comes from photosynthesis. So you've got all this leaf area. And uh, it's a grape that a month before it's ripe, I know ours is already at 13.5% alcohol. And it's still green seeds. You know, it's clearly not even close to being picked. Um, so you're kind of, it's a foot race between tannin, the acid level, and then trying to keep the alcohol from going crazy. Or you just embrace it and make a 16% wine and, and exacerbate those aromatics and stuff. Um, but it's, I've never seen, it's the only grape I've ever worked with that's like that. It's just so big. And actually this year I experimented with cutting off a lot of those laterals and pulling every third leaf and things like that, just to try to choke it back a bit. Will you, will you mind painting a little bit of a clearer picture when you're talking about laterals and about kind of the way, way this looks literally on the vine? Yeah. I wish I had a, I should yeah. have sent you a couple of pictures. Start talking. Let me, let me see if I can find something. Yeah. But, uh, the Sagrantino just, it has very densely packed leaves and they're very thick and they have a really hairy underside, which again, I haven't seen in any other grapevine like this, uh, very thick, vigorous canes. Um, but really what we call internodes, which is the, the distance between each leaf. So some types of Sangiovese, you'll get six to eight inches and there'll be a leaf and then another leaf going down, then another one going up. Sagrantino will be literally every inch and a half leaf, 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 leaf with these incredibly bushy canopies. Um, and you can find videos on YouTube of, uh, uh, uh who's the guy in Coleadale that I like, uh, Antano. Yeah. Milziadi Antano. Love uh, producer, uh, kind of clearing these leaves away and talking about it, uh, just how, how vigorous it is. But you also don't want to expose the grapes to too much sun and then you just get kind of bland, jammy wine. So it's it's a balancing act with Sagrantino that's really kind of fascinating. Um, and from my own just experience with it, uh, it's kind of an adventure grape for me because I drove up to eastern Washington to go pick up the vines because it was the only place in the U.S. I could get them. Uh, planted 500 of them in 2012. Uh, the wine that you have in front of you from Prima Materia, that is one barrel from 2015, which was our first harvest, one barrel 2016, and one barrel 2017. So out of 500 vines, we're barely getting a barrel. And now production is all the way up to maybe two barrels in a good year. So even though they're really vigorous vines, they're not heavy croppers, which is another reason that it's very robust. You know, you have a lot of a lot of foliage going into very few grapes. And it's just, it's been a really interesting thing to grow. And the wine has changed dramatically for me. Um, this one that you have in front of you uh, is definitely lighter than the other one, definitely less tannin, definitely a little more high toned. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I just bottled the next round of Sagrantino last Friday, and it's darker, it's heavier, it has aromatic, it's got that roasted herb stuff. It's like throwing a bundle of thyme on the grill along with all that cherry syrup. Like it's going someplace, it's going as the vines mature, it's becoming much more feral, which is exactly what I was hoping it would do. And more black cherry is coming in. But then just the wall of tannin. Uh, over the last couple of years, that tannin has, I don't know if it has to do with the root depth or what, but the tannin is now on. It's just like, it's pretty much like the fungally. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, from uh, and, and you, you would be able to clear this up, uh, but, you know, I've, I've heard from several winemakers and all, always in Italy and always in Barolo, but about the physiological life cycle of tannin within the within the the the, the vine itself and and when mm-hmm. that kind of comes to maturity and mm-hmm. focus less on ripeness and more on that um you'll, you'll have a more more balanced wine yeah well with these tannin driven grapes I, I would put ionico in the same category to an extent you almost don't even worry about the fruit you're because tannin is sort of the defining factor and definitely takes front stage on the tactile side you're right. just kind of trying to get everything in line behind that with harvest. So let's, let's talk a little bit about where, uh, where your, uh, your vines are uh, real quick. Yeah. So we're up in Lake County, which is just North of Napa uh, touches both Mendocino and Sonoma County. It's, it's kind of the forgotten fourth County of the, uh, of the square up there. Um, but it's, starting to really produce some good wines and there's a lot of vineyard planting going on. Uh, the altitude pretty much starts at about 1300 feet for grape growing. We're at 1450 approximately and goes all the way up to 3000 feet. People are, uh, exploring even a little bit higher than that, but winter comes early. It freezes pretty hard up there. So it's, we'll see how high we can really go and still get things right before the snow comes. Uh-huh. And we're located in sort of in the central area in between the lake and then the Mayacamas mountains, which sort of run the spine through, you know, Napa, Sonoma and up into Mendocino. If you drive up Napa Valley heading towards Calistoga, they're the mountains on your left. And we're about a mile from the run out of the Mayacamas heading east. And then we have a 4,600 foot volcano about two miles away which defines the other side of that boundary. Uh, and that last exploded about 11,000 years ago. So it's actually one of the most dangerous volcanic fields in the U.S., according to geologists. Still wow. very active with high explosion potential. Wow. Yeah, kind of exciting. So very mixed soils where we are, a good amount of rock, some clay from, you know, sort of eruptive runoff. Uh, we're near a big body of water, but we're out of the there's sort of a low-lying sink effect that it has but we're up out of that by about 100 feet so we're kind of transitional between Mayakama's you know real hillside and then more flatland uh, about a mile from us around the lake that's where all the Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot and lots of other things that like a little more cooler and a little richer soil grow uh, but on the vineyard map here the very bottom left hand I think that's an N uh, that's the Sagrantino. Um, yeah, 500 vines, so not much, but it takes a lot of, 
yeah, they're very vigorous. It takes a lot of work, several passes to keep everything clear and open and under control. We had a lot of frost this year too. Uh, so have to reprune things next year a little bit. Uh, but it doesn't harvest particularly late, certainly not as late as Ionico. Um, after Sangiovese, but not horribly, which is good because uh, you can usually safely get it in before rain or snow. So, uh, but it does bud out pretty early. That makes it susceptible to those early spring freezes. And it's fairly, uh, doesn't need a ton of water either. It's, it's one of those vines that it, it, you can tell it has a long history. It's kind of adaptable. It's sort of a survivor doesn't need a whole, even though we do a lot in the vineyard with it, it's pretty durable on its own. It's yeah. like Ionico. You can tell that it's something that's been around for a while. Right on. It's not one of those super finicky, super finicky things that's in the wrong place all the time. Yeah. Nebbiolo, Pinot Noir, Ugh. some of these super finicky, <laughs> Sangiovese to a certain respect. Yeah. These are hard, not, not hardy grapes. <laughs> these are finicky, yeah. delicate little... And this is part of that funny, you know, sort of dialogue between growing French varietals and then Italian. Just the Italian ones are so much more. And it's not that they're just Cabernet is easy to grow, man. That is the easiest way. Easy to grow, yeah. Sauvignon Blanc is pretty easy. Chardonnay is pretty easy. But these Italian grapes are very particular. They come from specific places and specific climates. So they have sort of a narrow range of, of preference, I guess, that we're just starting to figure out now. Cool. Should we get into uh, glass one here, into Pietro's wine, talk a little bit about what's in the glass? Please feel free to unmute. <laughs> Thank you all for that. Um, let's go around a little bit. Um, who would like to start us off? Or I can. Why don't you start us off so we know what you what we're supposed to say? Oh gosh! Now, now, now Lisa, that's dangerous language for those of uh, those of you here that have been to my classes. Mary's got a big smile on her face right now. Um, I don't allow such things. <laughs> um, I think uh, I, it's it's if I say something, it's easy for everyone to get their nose in their glass and go, "Oh, I get that too." Um, may, if it's all right with you, Lisa, I'd love to finish with me. Um, but okay, I, we can do that too. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, some thoughts um, with, with wine one. Definitely a, a cleaner, lighter, you know, slightly more nuanced uh, expression. Not, not, we're not at 11 with, uh, with Fongoli. We're, we're slightly turned down a little bit less. But what do we think of this wine? I I wasn't getting, you know, you you you, you talked up the funk of the uh, the Italian, but I thought Pietro's tasted, you know, smelled kind of funky too. Yeah, um, in the best way. Yes. In <laughs> yeah. Way. Well, mine usually take about an hour to defunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I uh, think funk will. We opened these about forty-five minutes ago. Both of them. <laughs> okay, that should be cool. just about right. Um, and they. Uh, we 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 sipped from them both. We must confess, but the uh, I don't know. Maybe the maybe Pietro's is a little fruitier, perhaps. Yeah, a little bit more fruit forward. Yeah, 
Yeah. I'm getting kind of dark fruits, but I, for me, Sagrantino is always kind of a bramble. So I get like red fruits. I get a little bit of black fruits. Believe it or not, I get like a little bit of blue in there. There's always kind of a mix. Like Zinfandel mm-hmm. has that, whereas Pinot is pretty strictly red um, okay. or Nebbiolo, things like that. Anyone so else? Finish that bramble? The way it ends on my tongue. You know, it's, it's, it's nice. At risk of saying not what Paul said, but what uh, Pietro said. Like it was cool hearing the story about the high alcohol and the wall of tannins. Uh, this one, I, we also indulged in both of them uh, before because we lack self-control, but it was, <laughs> um, it was great. It definitely had some of the alcohol and like the sugar that was mentioned, but it felt like a very like crisp and contemporary uh, representation of uh, the the Italian one. Yeah, I agree. This uh, this Pietro's has a polished feel to it. I, I don't think you can escape the funk with Sagrantino. There's like a to me the fruit is 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 on the front of my palate, but there's always like a background of like mm. herbs and spices and maybe a little cigar box back there. And I think that just comes with Sagrantino. But I agree, Julian. It's got like a, a cleaner, more a little little bit more fruit forward feel to it. You can yeah, the sweet history of it, like where it was sweet. You kind of get that in the in the sip. Like it's not sweet, but you can feel that it kind of could have been. You can feel why it gravitates towards sweet for all those years. Yeah, I agree. And I'll tell you, folks, uh, Sagrantino Pasito is is sexy stuff. It's hard to find, but it is just downright sexy. And you want to have like dark chocolate and dessert that are like more cake driven. So, you know, like more, more, you know, a little bit something for your palate to hold on to. They can be pretty uh, intense. That tannin does not go away with the sweet wine. It remains. Hmm. It's the only sweet wine I've ever come across where that's happened. I hope you're looking for some. Yes, ma'am. Don't you worry, I'm on it. Oh, you're on it. Good. <laughs> so, Paul, I don't, for the California one, I don't feel like it's as funky as the Italian one. Mm-hmm. It has, initially, it just has that super strong alcohol scent, but then it has like this really pretty floral that follows it mm-hmm. that is unexpected, you know? Um, and you're when you first, when I first get the whiff of the alcohol, I'm like, oh my god, it's going to be really, really strong. And then it it follows up with this really floral bouquet in it, and it's not stinky. Mm. Yeah, it's a little bit cleaner. I, I agree. Um, I think you know when whenever you taste Sagrantino, there's there's always going to be this kind of aggression to it. Um, on the nose, kind of the alcohol, be it alcohol or be it earth driven, you know, there's always going to be something, it's going to jump out at the glass, I think more than pretty much any other red grape out there, uh, save for Norello Mascalese in the highest altitudes in Mount Etna and Sicily. Um, but yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the funk that the Fongoli has. Um, but you know, uh, Pietro mentioned Paolo Bea, a producer in Umbria, and the last name is B-E-A. And if you can get your hands on those wines, I applaud you for it. I find them to be rather overpriced nowadays. Um, but he makes, uh, he was kind of the, 
the grandfather of the natural wine movement in central Italy. And uh, uh, Fongoli is, is a descendant of that movement. Um, almost identical uh, ways of making wine between those two producers, although Fongoli kind of pulls back on maceration and aging. Um, but still, um, complete biodynamic approach, complete natural approach to winemaking. Um, I think this, this is a good time. Petro, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about, I mean, I can talk about biodynamics in philosophy and, and the nine preparations and all that stuff, but what, what's the difference between your Sagrantino in the glass, the way you make it, and a stone-cold, badass, biodynamic, take-it-to-the-limits, no-sulfur-added producer like Fongoli? Bring it. In, yeah. In spirit or execution? <laughs> a little bit of both, man. Yeah. Uh, I think Sagrantino is a grape that definitely, uh, to achieve its potential, um, I think biodynamic is probably a great way to go with it. Uh, inevitably, I find that, and I'm not one of those hippie guys, uh, but the but the biodynamic wines they have more minerality they have a little more zip a little more of a spine a little more verticality to them energy yeah i read it always yeah yeah there's just you know it's like words for snow you know might need 14 more to really describe things accurately but there's a something to it that works um there may be other systems that work too i don't know um but because it's such a big grape and I think it could be, I'm not sure that expressive is the right word with it. There's something, uh, there's something about it where it's, it, it almost doesn't want to be expressive. It mm. almost wants to sort of hold everything in, in a ball and make you work at it. Um, but I think vineyard practices uh, would probably just for my own winemaking, this, this, this first bottling of it, fairly happy with it but it didn't have the sort of pushing at the seams that a lot of the ones that i do like from umbria have so in the one i just bottled i uh, co-fermented a little bit of uh dried white grapes in it and a little bit of air-dried cabernet franc just to sort of pad around the edges and to make sure that that there's a little floral bump in there and a little, little more on the leathery side, mm. which I like. Um, so the the paradigm, like uh, that, I think Fongoli is working with, is actually the style that I would prefer. Yeah. Spontaneous yeast, you know, spontaneous fermentation. Yeah, and you know, using natural fermentations too. That means, you know, again, that's going to be a foot race with the tannin. Those fermentations take longer to finish. Yeah. So, you know, you got to really, really be on top of that. Yeah, especially with all that sugar. I mean, it's, yeah. even if you have ripe grapes, I mean. <laughs> when, For yeah. us, I'm, I'm putting heaters on the bins. I'm putting hot water bottles in there. I'm doing everything to get those yeasts to finish that last 1% of alcohol. Because wow. they're tired, man. They want to go to sleep for the winter. Yeah. So, so it ends up being a 30-day fermentation. Right. A pretty long time on all that tannin. Um, unfortunately, it's good tannin. One of the differences Pietro ages his Sagrantino. What's the size of your barrels? 
Uh, just regular barrique. 225 liter barrels. So he ages them in barrique, which are 225 liter barrels. They're smaller. You can, you know, you can kind of put your arms around them if you're standing tall. Um, they're, uh, they're known as barrique, which is French for bent by fire. Um, and to make those barrels, you, you have to toast the insides in order to actually close the staves and put the hoops on and actually make the barrel. Um, Fongoli's barrels are, are cask. They're called tini. And in that area, and they're large boti barrels, and uh, where you know you're standing and you're about halfway. <laughs> they're very big barrels, and um, those are, are are steam bent over the process of of a number of days uh, how to make those. So there's no actual toasting going on on those barrels. So you have a real neutral barrel. Um, but uh, the, the, with Pietro's uh, barrels, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you use mostly used barrels, almost yeah, all, right? Well. 10 yeah. to 15 years old. So you're seeking that neutral, that kind of neutral thing. So when a barrel's being used, you know, over three to four times, three to four seasons, it's rendered neutral. So it will really um, uh, give very little onto the wine, um, very little of that spice, very little of that, you know, tannin. It a acts more as a shaping element uh, to yeah. the wine, from what I know. And Pietro, yeah. feel free, please. Uh, purely a vessel. I, I will use barrels with thinner staves so that there's a little more oxygen exchange going on to help with that tannin. Okay. But, but I'm not trying to add anything to the flavors of the wine. Yeah. With those. Yeah. I've, I've met producers in Barolo who uh, request their staves to be twice or three times as thick because they want to do the opposite of what Pietro's trying to do. Um, they want to, they want a real slow micro oxygenation. Um, yeah, so that's oxygen is a very powerful thing when it comes to winemaking. Yeah, and with those big barrels, you basically have to figure on more time mm -hmm. in them, but it, it preserves the sort of the the harder soul of the wine a little more in its natural state. I think. And if you folks are conceptualizing this this aging process, think about smaller barrels, so you have less volume of wine, so more of your wine is touching wood. When you have larger casks or boti, as I lovingly love, love to call them, <laughs> um, you have much more volume of wine, so less of your wine is touching wood. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of producers will use a combination of both as well. Yeah, yeah like a regimen. Yeah. yeah, so you can get a little bit of that shaping, a little bit of that kind of finesse, but then still have some of the more primal elements in the blend. Mm -hmm. Cool. Petra, I really like your wine, man. It has really nice mid-palate, and the acidity is just pouring off my lips. Um, that kind of mouth-watering feeling when I'm drinking Pietro's wine, it's always at the tip of my lips, and it's just kind of spilling over, which, uh, which tells me I want a burger with onions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some pork shoulder. Yeah, Sagrantino makes you hungry. Onions. What's that? Sagrantino makes you hungry. Yeah. That's one of the good things about it. Yeah. I, I remember when I, I, I tasted the fungally, my, my rep about two weeks ago gave me a bottle and I brought it home and drank a glass on an empty stomach. <laughs> that was a bad idea. <laughs> oh, I felt it in my whole body. <laughs> the fungally, when we started drinking it, um, because we did our homework, we're very diligent, and so we <laughs> opened the wines up early and have been sipping them 
with dedication, I'll say. Um, The fungally, my takeaway was it reminded me of an old library. It was like musty books and cigars and a little bit of barnyard. um, And then that kind of like melodic fruit kind of in the middle. Um, Well said, Lisa. (laughs) Oh, um, a minta. Aminta, I'm sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> Pleasure to meet you. Sorry, <laughs> name's not up there. Pardon me, I got it wrong. <laughs> no problem. And then uh, he was saying, uh, really, um, was it plum skins you were tasting? On on Pietro's uh, wine, yeah, like really predominant, like oh. plum skin and maybe a little bit of sour cherry. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, But we just love how just drinkable this Sagrantino is. I just could, I just drinking a bottle slowly through the course of a meal um, is just always a delight. I agree. I agree. Um, does anyone else feel the evolution of this wine from, or both of these wines from when you opened it to when you're drinking it now? Oh. I think both evolve a lot. I know the fungally for me takes kind of a leap at some point in the first like 25 or 30 minutes, it like leaps somewhere um, into so, so a bog. When we first opened it, kind of danced all over your tongue. Mm-hmm. Little alive. And then it seems like it settles down a little bit and kind of figures out where it wants to be. And then it smooths out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I agree. I think that uh, uh, Pietro, the prima materia after opening it not really the acidity uh tanning a lot of alcohol but it seems like there's very mild in terms of complexity body not a particularly difficult wine to drink Mm -hmm. so i think i i picture it beautifully with um appetizer you know with cheese and a little bit of uh, crackers, uh, bread. So, so you know, in talking, it's a very talkative wine, like great, I think, as an opening in the evening. But <laughs> I'll say one hour later, uh, this, the body is actually now coming up and, and it's, uh, it's increasing in, in complexity. So, uh, and it's getting... Uh, it evolves with the evening. With yeah, the <laughs> a lot more complex. <laughs> so it's actually, yeah... Great bottle to go through slowly if you can make it slowly. <laughs> it's too good <laughs> if you can manage. Yeah, <laughs> well said, Salvo. Well said. Yeah, I think a lot of these oh. big Italian reds. Ooh, I'm sorry. I think they lend themselves oh. to slow. Well, we, we were able to enjoy it with Alejandro's uh, lasagna, the short-lived rib lasagna, <clears throat> and. So I always, I always like to have a tannin wine with, with meat. Somehow it, that, that animal fat and the wine somehow is so satisfying. It's like a sponge. Mm-hmm. The wine is like a sponge. It just soaks yeah. up, like savory, that oil, that fat. Yeah. And the only thing I would ask is uh, the bottle wasn't, there's no vintage on it. So I'm wondering what year he produced it. And I think uh, he said, you know, it was a year. Go ahead. Oh, and what a wonderful thing it is to drink from one barrel, from one year, from one hillside, you know, to have that experience. And it's very unique. Not many people in this world will be able to drink this wine tonight. You know, it's wonderful. (laughs) That's true. Thank you. Thank you for bringing it to Mm -hmm. our home. 
Thank you, Nature. Nature, tell us the vintages again are in there. Uh, one barrel from 2015, one from 2016, and one from 2017. Amazing. Okay, it said one barrel on the light. <laughs> yeah. Three barrel. No, let's put three barrel, barrel into your it's eloquent statement, please. Yeah, <laughs> right on. But I think it kind of comes through in the wine. I think there is like a sense of freshness and mm. fruit on one end, but then you get a little bit of that more aged, um, <clears throat> some, uh, a little more sort of like red velvet-ish, uh, mm. you know, a little more oxygen exposure, sort of rounding out the back end. So sometimes the non-vintage thing, I mean, it's not something I like to do, uh, but sometimes there can be practical reasons to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's I know a, we kind of look sideways at it, but it is an option. There's a producer in Sicily uh, by the name of Calabretta. Um, Salvo, am I saying that right? Calabretta. Perfect. Yeah, um, and they, uh, they do a non-vintage red that they refer to as Calla Calla, which is pretty Italian. It means gulp, right? Like, Calla Calla is gulp, gulp. Calla Calla. Yeah, it flows down very Fast, very quickly. Fast. Um, <laughs> and uh, dangerous wines, by the way. And yeah, the, he uses a mixture of different vintages, and I'm always, always impressed with his wines. Yeah. yeah. I think Sean Thackeray's Pleiades is another, uh, a regular non-vintage red. Mm. That's, you know, this and that from, you know, a dash here, sort of the, the artist's uh, approach to it. Yeah, and they're doing it in Australia as well. Funny enough, Sagrantino's grown in Australia. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention grown that. In McLaren Vale, Barossa Valley, Hunter Valley, Eden Valley. Yeah, and Texas. What? Some ended out in hill country. Hmm. Seriously? Yeah. We loved it. Sagrantino in Texas. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's still made in America. I um, have had these wines open since five o'clock. And um, it's been really, really interesting to, from the first smell. And, and when I opened the fun, fun go, it was like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know. And then I was sipping them through this other Zoom thing I had to go to. So I'm, I'm kind of getting to know them and, you know, and I love this intensity, uh, you know, of the great, you know me, Paul. It's like, <laughs> that's what I really go for, the punch. And I found that Pietro's wine is definitely more elegant. And if I had someone to dinner who didn't know a lot about wine and these were the wines I had, I would serve them Pietro's wine. But the second one, I have to say, and this is just me, it's just the person, I just love that pow and that grip and that ongoing fight in the mouth and deliciousness. And I haven't eaten beef in four years, but I am dying for a bistecca alla Fiorentina. <laughs> I don't have one in my freezer, Mary, or else I'd run down and bring it to you. <laughs> bueno. 100%. Grazie, choices. Mary. I bueno. love it. Grazie. Grazie. Yeah. Hey, Virginia and Francis, 
So these two have uh, were um, uh, great clients of Alessandro's at a, at a restaurant in San Francisco called Chiaro Scuro that I was uh, I had a pleasure of being a part of for uh, a, 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 for about four years. And uh, these guys are all about the food, all about the food and the wine pairing together. So I'm curious, guys, which is the best with which? <laughs> Putting you right on the spot. <laughs> Pietro's. Um, Pietro's? Huh? Yeah, it, it was more approachable to me. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you guys were talking about the funk, and I kept, we were on mute, thank God. But I was like, <laughs> what do they mean by the funk? <laughs> like, I don't get it. What's the funk? And so he was telling me a little bit about, like, what, what specifically he was smelling. And then that helped me understand it a little bit more. For me, I, I, I preferred Pietro's. Pietro's. What did you guys have to eat? We had Alessandro's meal. Did you have the whole meal? Whole yeah. meal. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Really good. So, I mean, it, it really worked out. Um, yeah, you know, we saw like, those wine. It worked really well with the, um, what was that? The, the, tart, the, the tart appetizer with the uh, squash, right? But not yeah. squash. Worked really well with that. Um, um, yeah, I see that. Yeah, autumnal kind of that butternut squash and that autumn flavors and the sagrantino. I absolutely see that. I I, I really enjoyed the uh, fongoli with the lasagna. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Virginia. Virginia like um, Pietro's wine. I think for, for the, the whole, whole meal. Yeah. I the think whole meal, right across. The fongoli didn't really just work with you. Like there was something funky about it. Uh, that she didn't like. I didn't say funky. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought the fungoli worked really well with the lasagna. Uh, I mean, that lasagna had everything I liked in it. You know, short rib, truffle, mushrooms, <laughs> oh. pasta. You're a complicated man, Francis. You're yeah. a complicated man. Mac and cheese on drugs. I mean, with <laughs> This work, work for me. <laughs> I don't think Alessandro's paying attention right now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I am. I am. I'm here listening <laughs> because I'm cleaning my place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, after all those orders. <laughs> but yeah, I'm listening. Wow, good, good. Uh, thank you for your feedback, guys. Always valuable. Your food, Alessandro, together with... Uh, Paul's explanation of the wines and offering of the wines. And it, it just brought us back to, you know, five, 10 years ago when we would be at Kiaroscuro. So thank you for this experience, guys. Mm-hmm. Good. Ah, oh, good. Cheers. <laughs> bueno, bueno. Cheers. Thank well, it, it brought us back to like, you know, 10 months ago when we had a life <laughs> and we could go do this in person and do a wine tasting with food. So Thank you for bringing it to us via Zoom and Alessandro and delivered to our doorstep. <laughs> My pleasure. And, um, given, the, <laughs> given the response uh, from, from today's tasting, I, I think you all may see this happening um, on a bit more of a regular basis. Um, I think people are very excited and, and yeah. So uh, yeah, a lot, lot more to come um, to, to be sure. Um, I just want to tell a quick thing. I, I Maybe it's selfish of me, but... Right after I became certified as a sommelier about nine years ago, my first wine experience was an interview for a job 
for a company called the Mirabelle Hotel Group in Carmel by the Sea. Um, and they had a property up in Yachtville known as Continenta Piero, which is now, I think, owned by, uh, I think, uh, Richard Reddington or somebody up there. But, um, and I distinctly recall going in, they, they set me up in a beautiful room in their, in their beautiful uh, bed and breakfast, the Auberge de Soleil, and uh, had nice dinner. And my interview was myself, the wine director, and Marco Caprai of Arnaldo Caprai. Oh, wow. And his lineup of wines going back to the mid-1990s. And I realized about 20 minutes into this that I wasn't really going to have an interview. Uh, this was my interview, me just drinking with these guys. So I <laughs> took it upon myself to do all the wine service for all <laughs> six hours of that evening, decanting and pouring and all that, because I needed to show off my stuff, something. Um, but that was my first uh, job experience as a sommelier was with uh, Marco Caprai and, and him talking about the birth of Sagrantino and about his dad, Arnaldo, in creating that DOC. And, and he was very oh, oh. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'll tell you all that. Yeah. Sagrantino's got a little place in my heart, um, however funky yeah. I think it is. <laughs> Paul, can I ask you a question about this uh, this Marco Caprai that you've referred to as the, the person who revived the grape? So um, we were in Umbria, what, three years ago? Um, and we went to uh, Antonelli, a winery there. And um, what is their relationship to this story? Because we heard a kind of a similar story from them. Are they kind of stealing the story or are they... Are they the same organization or what is the deal? No, it's tough. I, I, and I know Antonelli, I've had their wines and, and I know you'll go on their site and they'll say, we were the first ones to do Sagrantino. Um, this is uh, something I come across a lot in Italy um, uh, is uh, I, I try and look for patterns in my, in my education when it comes to this. And Marco and the Arnaldo Capri family is, is just across the board and recognized. Um, Antonelli family is, it, I just don't come across their name very much in my research with Janice Robinson, Ian D'Agata, Tom Highland, Ken Vastola, like all the people that I reach out to here in the United States. Um, I, I don't think that they're connected as families, um, but I'm sure that I, to, to say that one family were the only ones to be making a dry Sagrantino back in the 60s, I can't imagine that to be true. I know, I'm sure there were several other families doing it. But no one um, took it. No one brought it to the University of Milan. No one spent time uh, locating cuttings and creating a massal selection, all this stuff. Um, I, I think it was the Capri family that did that. Um, and that's a lot of work. Um, and, and it costs a lot of money to do that, um, to commission these studies to this university. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I've had Antonelli wines before, and I, I think they're, they're lovely. Um, but... Uh, that's all I, that, that's my answer. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> yeah. No, no, thanks for the answer. And I'm certainly not like suggesting that they're, they're right or something like that. It was no, just funny, yeah. uh, how similar the stories were. Very similar. You know, I come across uh, a story in Tuscany um, between the producer, the family of the Biondi Santi family in Montalcino and uh, the Castellari family in Chianti. And they both lay heavy claim to Sangiovese. And in that regard, I have no idea who is like the original, who like spent the most amount of time, who isolated the most, all this. So even in the, the, the blue chip stuff, there's still kind of like a, what the hell? 
<laughs> who really did this? <laughs> yeah, I will say that Sagrantino, uh, despite the fact that there's not a lot of um, documentation on where it comes from, it's it's mentioned in like when people talk about Galliopo in Calabria, when people talk about Sangiovese in Tuscany, people talk about um, uh, Grecetto and Vernaccia. These are a, a special group of the 3,000 grapes <laughs> that Italy is known to have, for over 400 in production today or something like that. Um, there is a very small group that, are, that, that people really believe were born in, on the shores of Italy, didn't come from Greece, didn't come from Eastern Europe, really born in Italy. Um, and Sagrantino is rumored to be one of them. So. <laughs> It's 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 very interesting. If it, it, you know, Ian Dagter writes about it in his books, the Sacramentino grape. Uh, but if you go back to um, Marcella Hazan, the Italian cookbook author, her husband Victor wrote a book on Italian wines, and if you look in there, it's barely mentioned. Yeah, that's barely mentioned. So yeah. things have changed so very much. It's really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. I, I have a, an oddball question. I, I don't know, given this is a group. It seems to me it was about a year ago we were having a very happy evening at Olivetto's eating truffles. Yes. And I'm looking at the date. Isn't this truffle season? Yep. <laughs> What's happened? <laughs> Does anybody know? I, I don't know. I, I haven't really read up on it, and I'm 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 neglecting my duties as a Cavalieri member. Um, not you eat truffle. Maybe a little truffle dinner, Alessandro. <laughs> um, oh, is that what you're saying? Oh, if anyone, I don't know. What? Truffle that's and wine. My, that's it's my part. COVID. These lovely Let me mute Alessandro. Hold on. Let me, mute Alessandro. Hold on. Tomata, you know, Give like... me a moment. Let me mute Alessandro. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you guys want truffles. That's a very, that's no problem. That's no problem. White truffles are no problem. Um, I have a very nice, Alessandro and I have a very nice connection. Ilari in Urbani. She's getting really good stuff right now. From oh, vorrei uh, mangiare. So, uh, email us if anybody wants truffles. All right. We've been, yeah. we, we were talking a little bit about a truffle dinner. I, I need um, it. It would require you all to uh, be in your kitchens for a short portion of it. Um, because I think there, there's going to be some dropping of pasta and water and some okay. emulsifying in the that would, well, uh So it may be a bit more of an involved. We will do truffles. Um, it means everyone has to get a truffle shaver. So put your orders in now. Truffle shavers are hard to find the closer you get to Christmas. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, okay. I will not pre-shave it. I won't do it. <laughs> and... and, and a good wine. Yes, yes. yes. Barolo, yes. Yes. For sure, for sure. Oh, mamma mia. <laughs> Anyone have any other questions on Sagrantino or thoughts <clears throat> uh, from, from Mr. Pietro, the, 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 the real mind here? <laughs> I have, or like just noticing it, the, again, like the comment about the high sugars that it gets and seeing that on the Fungoli, it's uh, 16% alcohol, which yeah. is in. 
Are you uh, feeling it? I mean, not not feeling it, but like when you're tasting it, is it is it the alcohol like driving the bus? Because for me, it wasn't. For me, it's less. It's, much. Less I was I, I was so shocked that it was sixteen percent. Um, but yeah, I, I don't normally have wine that high in the percentages, and so I can't even remember the last time I had sixteen. Like, is that like uh, <laughs> usual? Up there, man. That's up yeah. There. Yeah, for sure. And and if I could urge those of you that, that that are able to show any restraint at all this evening, and for those of you that have got food, I understand if you can't, but to save a little bit of your Sagrantino for tomorrow, put a cork in the bottle and to save a little bit of a taste tomorrow, just to see how it is tomorrow. Um, and when we do classes on Nebbiolo and our tastings on Nebbiolo and stuff, um, this will be a big factor. Um, but uh, it's it's so it's always interesting to taste an Italian wine that, uh, day two. <laughs> All right, I got it. I got it. Oops. Good. Yeah. Do that. Cool. So, so can I ask a question? So about the so the difference. So uh, there's also a big difference between the uh, age, right? Of these two wines. One is 2012, and the other one is uh, 2016 average. I, I think. And um, and then the difference in uh, altitude. Um, I don't know because this um, there's a lot of lakes, so a lot of water, maybe a little bit of a higher humidity. While you know Umbria is pretty dry overall, I think. And so, so do you, uh, how do age and climate uh, um, you know participate contribute to the difference between these two? Um, wine beside just uh you know the region of, of the production per yeah. se i'm gonna i'm gonna give this i'm gonna let pietro take this question yeah. because he knows much more about it but all i just want to give a little bit of clarity so fungoli wines uh entirely biodynamically made spontaneous yeasts on the grapes and in the cellar that's what they allow fermentation to occur fermentation occurs and then the wine gets transferred over to large casks where it's aged for between eight to ten years between eight to 10 years, and then it's further bottle aged, and then it's released onto the market, which is why you're seeing 2012, which is not the current vintage, but I got the last uh, uh, 16 bottles of 2012 in California. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the raging regimen with Fongoli. So please, Pietro, take over, man. Yeah, uh, I actually think that where we are in Lake County, I, I have not been to Umbria, so I can't speak from experience. But uh, I know it's generally up in that 300, 400 meter or higher elevation. Uh, I know that there are going to be somewhat volcanic soils up there that are similar. I've seen pictures where they seem to be pretty high iron content with the same red earth with some clay in the mix that we have in Lake County. I actually think that it is possibly surprisingly similar between the two. And actually, Lake County is very low humidity. I, I would say an average day in summer is 15%, maybe 10. We never get fog. Um, too many mountains in between the coast and where we are. I think the main difference, uh, A, I don't know what the clone, the origin of the clone we have in the U.S. is. So I don't know if it would correspond to the area. But I think it's just the age of the vines is sort of coming through with the lighter, brighter because what I just bottled is pretty on par with the Fongoli. It's a lot more black cherry skin. The tan, it, it has more of that, um, that feral quality to it. 
that I like so much. You know, it's a little bit bursting at the seams. Like there's a, you know, it's like, you know, you shouldn't have had that cigarette, but you did. And now what are you going to do kind of thing? So it's just as, you know, it, it's not as well behaved. I, I like this first one and it's, it's kind of nice that it's linear and precise and uh, with age, those floral elements that Sagrantino right. has. And I think the Bungalee has it also. It's just, it's kind of buried underneath the, the, yeah. the girth of the wine. Yeah. Uh, but Sagrantino does develop floral stuff as, as it ages. Those molecules kind of come apart and start to aromatize. And you can get, that's what's so cool about Sagrantino. And, and like Nebbiolo, where it's, it's sort of punching you, but at the same time, there are all these little flitting bits of you know, beauty in the, in the glass just yeah. kind of wafting through. Monte Falco, um, the, or the area where Sagrantino is grown, kind of all around it, there are Appalachians where yeah. Sagrantino becomes more floral. Um, right around the, the, in the center of Monte Falco, Sagrantino is at its most structured. But if you travel outside of that into some of the other areas, it can get um, very, very kind of floral and pretty, um, which is, I think, I don't think I've ever tasted Sagrantino um, in my life that was um, approachable like Pietro's is, um, and, and, and clean and, and bright. And yeah, I think well, new world expression of grapes like Sagrantino and Alianico, there's something there, man. I tasted Alianico that was super pure as well. There are a couple of producers that are making more modern, well, like we said, modern style 10 years ago, but it's the modern, modern style. That's a little more acid driven, yeah. a little less tannin, less ripeness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, lower ripeness, less sugar. Uh, Scotia Diavoli is yeah, one of them. And they, even make, a, they make a sparkling Sagrantino as well, Method Champenois. That's actually pretty good. It's starting to starting to get good. I've always um, seen it. I've never tasted it. Yeah, yeah but, uh, you know, the it, I think between the clones, between the different areas, the different soil types, there are there is room for different expressions, and then you have younger producers. You know, Sagrantino, fifteen years ago, was big and over oaked, and it you know like everything else, it got popular. It went you know through the nineties into the two thousands, and now it's in this sort of diverse and reassessing itself place. Yeah, you know, what is what does the soul look like, kind of thing. So, you know, if uh, I think there are more polished versions out there if this rougher style isn't necessarily to your liking. I think the grape <laughs> itself has enough integrity that it can probably bear a little bit of winemaker imprint. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, if we're looking at the, the scale of Sagrantino, Paolo Bea, for me, is the most aggressive Sagrantino on the market. Um, and then you get to, you know, Scaccia Diavoli, as, uh, as Pietro mentioned, that's more finesse. Um, but there's one right in the middle, and it's a producer that I've longed to find again, and Pietro mentioned him earlier. Um, but it's got a funny name. It's Milzade Antano. And they're from Colliale, what is it? Colliale Duli? Yeah, or Colliadole. Uh, Colliadole. <laughs> Colliale Duli. Um, wow, that's yeah. American right here. Um, but that is a beautiful very pretty, very polished, yeah. almost, almost vertical uh, Sagrantino, which to me, these Tuscan grapes or these central Italian grapes tend to be wide grapes. And uh, 
their their wines get get vertical and bright and they're cool. Yeah, that was the best Segrantino I've had in three years. Yeah. Um, in fact, I have a bottle that'll probably they don't find a time good enough to drink it yet. What so year? I'll probably do it soon. What year? I think it's yeah. 12, actually. 12? Cool. Yeah. Cool. Okay. You know, I already texted. All right. Wait, wait. All right. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank everyone for coming. This was great. Good discussion. Um, Super. And thank you, Alessandro. Yeah, thank you, Alessandro, very much for the food. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> Folks, stay tuned. I will. Uh, I'll, I'll put you all on a single email and send you out when we have our our, our proverbial shit together um, and 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 have our our next tasting. But we're gonna we're gonna try and sneak in Alianico um, in the next two weeks, um, and hopefully, Alessandro will put a menu to Alianico. But that'll be a really fun tasting um, because I'll, I'll likely include a. So there'll be a two or a three pack. So we'll have Pietro's awesome Adianico, and then I'll have one from a biodynamic producer in Campania, and then I'll have a, a, also one that's quite serious. Um, that uh, it'll be a special bottle, and I'll, I'll put together a special price for for our tasting um, for that. And it's from Mastro Berardino, the Radici. Oh, Adianico oh. made back. Uh, the first oh. was nineteen. <laughs> so crazy old. Um, but that'll be. So stay tuned for that stuff. Um, and thank you all so much for coming. Pietro, please. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Yeah, nice to great. see everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Right. Enjoy the weekend, the rest of your weekend, of course. And yeah, happy, happy Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, everybody. Oh, yes. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Pietro. Happy Ciao. Ciao. Ciao.